Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We're so glad you're here. If you've been here a while, I'm doing a little bit of backing up and reminding us of a couple of things. But remember, we've also got a lot of people who are new. So some of this will be repeat for some of you in the beginning because we're starting in to a new series now in the second half of the book of Acts. So you'll remember that we were starting in this spring in the book of Acts, but we wanted to remember, first of all, that uh, the book of Acts is actually part two of a two-volume work by the author Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And Gigi made this for me, my... uh, my graphic designer, uh, high schooler, because I was, I, I talk with my hands a lot. I was like, Gigi, I want it to look like this. So all of the gospel of Luke, I have to go this way, everything is moving towards Jerusalem. All the motion is going towards Jerusalem, towards this important center with the culmination of the book of Luke is the crucifixion, resurrection of the risen Lord Jesus. We're all moving towards the revelation of Jesus as the Christ. And then Acts starts from that same point in Jerusalem with the risen, ascended Lord, Jesus, at the start, sending out, giving the spirit to the, his followers, and then everything starts moving out in the book of Acts. So this is, we are in a portion of a larger work that's going on by the author Luke, and it's important to know. Now we're in the phase in the book of Acts where the disciples are living this out and moving away from Jerusalem and the word of Good news of Jesus is spreading. So the first part we called becoming the church because this was a group of people who were now faithful followers of Jesus as Messiah who were figuring out what it meant to live this life out together. We are becoming something new. Yes, a continuation of the story of God as was always intended, but now there's something new. And that big thing that's new, of course, is the Holy Spirit working and guiding and leading them. So they were figuring out what is it to to become this church. And we observed all of these things in our last series. They, They were living lives of active worship, communal generosity that was really radical, Uh, faithful service to one another and to the marginalized around them, Uh, radical inclusion, this, this concept of the Jewish nation now inviting in with the good news Gentiles, non-Jewish people. This was extraordinary uh, inclusion and hospitality. And then, of course, persistent witness, because this movement of these Jesus followers came up against opposition. And that's where we start off today. And we start in a new series that we're calling Being the Missio Day. Now, you might, that's not me trying to be like branding or something. Like, Missio Day means we're, now it's time to be the mission of God. And this is this thing, this fellowship that formed, now living into their identity and their mission as the people of God. So, see, they as a community, they are the Missio Day. They are the mission of God. It's how God is being present in and among them. This is God's present now by the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. They are the mission of God, but they're also doing the mission of God. It's that spreading of the good news. It's telling the story, witnessing about Jesus to people. And now remember that the nature of this calling for the people of God has changed. The people who are included in the people of God is now shifting and forming, but but the mission of God has always been 
this spreading of kingdom news and God's presence. Remember all the way back in the Old Testament, God said to Abraham in this covenant in Genesis 12, 3, like all nations will be blessed through you. And so these people of God, first to be set apart as the Israel nation, now eventually, now God is doing this new work because of Jesus, and now they are going forward, and they've been told since old scriptures that you will bless all nations. And now they're living it out. It's happening. They are being the Missio Dei. So we are going to take Justine's advice from last week, and we are going to be reading through the book of Acts. For this Sunday, um, we were reading chapters 12 and 13. Uh, if you didn't read leading up to it, I encourage you to read those chapters this week. And then also for next week, please read Acts chapter 14. Um, this will help you to sort of get deep into the story as we're going through this, um, this, uh, this book and just really wanting to be shaped as a community who's trying to be the Missio Dei. And we, this, this work like really can shape us if we allow it to. Now, I want to let you know who you're learning from. I think this is really important. We did a book study uh, a while ago, a group of volunteers called The Elusive Dream, and we also went through a worship design experience where we um, reached out and heard in input from a bunch of people about our, our worship experience our whole Sunday morning, and it's clear to us that it's very important that we're learning and singing and talking from diverse voices, diverse perspectives. So I want you to know who I'm leaning heavily on. You also can see my porch table because I'm not a very good photographer. It's just a little metal grate thing. Sorry about that. Um, Beverly Gaventa, Yusto uh, Gonzalez, David Garland, and Willie James Jennings are four of the commentators that I am relying heavily on. And I just wanted you to know because um, if, I'm, if I'm spending time deep in these things, I want to know that these voices are the voices influencing how we're engaging with these scriptures. Uh, and today, again, as I said, we're going to be in chapters 12 and 13 talking about persistence in the face of opposition. So what we're gonna do for this series is really do what they call expository preaching. We're gonna just get into the word and we're gonna pause to observe what we're seeing, what we can learn just from pulling out and going through these verses methodically. And I won't cover every single verse of those two, don't worry, but, but time, right? Is, but that's the style that we're going about. So um, as Aaron read, we start out in chapter 12 and we hear that King Herod Agrippa began to persecute believers. And then this is such a brief sentence. These, uh, Luke writes, he had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. Nothing else is ever said about that again. That's it. It's just done. We don't know why. Okay, let's talk about Herod. And then Herod saw this was like really pleasing to the Jewish people. So he arrested Peter. We're, we're getting a hint of his motivations here already. Well, that was a success. I'm going to do it again. So this is another Herod than the, one, the other ones we've seen in Jesus' story. So here's his family tree, though. His, he is the grandson. This one is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that we read about early on in the Gospels who had the babies in Bethlehem killed because he wanted to see the Magi had come and said, we're coming to see the new king of the Jews. Or, and the, he was like, this is bad. And so he killed all the males under, I think it was three years of age. I didn't look up that scripture. Somebody remember? Anyway, all the boys in that community were killed under this guy's grandfather. And then he's the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the Herod who presided over the crucifixion of Jesus. This is this guy's family tree. And now he comes to the scene, and he decides to have the Apostle James killed. The, the scripture doesn't tell us even what the charges were or how it went down. Doesn't look like there was a trial. 
It just was, let's have this guy killed right out of the bat. And what we see here is, uh, Jennings points this out, that what matters in that little moment, that powerful and shocking one little sentence, is that the illicit power was in his hands to take what the state could not give, which was life. And Herod was having a good time exercising that kind of power. This action brought pleasure to both political and religious leaders. And so here we see a sign of human sinfulness, pleasure at the death of one's enemies and satisfaction at just silencing the opposition. You're against me? You're not doing what I like? I know what I'm gonna do. I can take that life and silence your voice. So now we see that it pleases people. So he goes on and he says, I'm gonna arrest Peter. We should expect that this is to lead to death because he just had a lot of fun in verse two. And so verse three, we can imply that Peter is going to die after this time in prison. And so the followers of Jesus all prayed that night before the trial. They gathered and they were in prayer, but Peter is bound in chains, what appears to be a solitary confinement, except the fact that he's guarded by a lot of guards, you guys. He has his hands chained to two different guards, and then there's other guards at the door. Has Peter ever been this like Hulk violent guy that deserves that kind of prison uh, setting? I, I've never seen anything that would make me think it. He's in maximum security. And the angel jars him awake. And this is funny because the, the word that's used is literally like, he strikes him, like, come on. The light in the presence isn't enough to wake him. And so he gives him a little jolt to wake him up. And have you guys ever been jolted awake from a dream? I kind of get where he's coming from, where Peter's coming from. In that moment where you kind of start awake and you, it's, everything's a little fuzzy. Like, wait, what's real? And what was just, ha like, I get that feeling. I know what Peter's talking about when he wasn't sure that it was real yet. Um, but here's one of those observations. So this is just a little side note, not the point of the sermon, but I, again, in this kind of preaching, we like to just pause and see little details. The angel tells him to get dressed. Peter has, within his imprisonment, quite possibly been in some way stripped down, in some way shamed, in some state of undress. But before the angel just swoops him miraculously out of that jail, which by the way is what happens. The angel does that miraculous thing, but starts by caring for Peter's physical body. You're gonna need some shoes. Get dressed, grab your cloak. And the reason I love this is that I always, you know, you hear sometimes people talking about things like, like the physical, the body is bad and the spiritual is good. And that's nonsense. That's not what God says. Our physical needs, our body and all of its messiness, God cares the angel tended to Peter's physical needs before this miraculous moment. Oh, there's that. Okay, I'm moving too much. Um, okay, so I'm gonna pick up where Aaron left off. When he realized this, that it wasn't a dream, he went home to the, the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door and the gate and the servant girl named Rhoda came and opened it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door, which I think is great. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Okay, couple fun things to observe in this little moment. When he realizes it's not a dream, he heads for Mary's house. Now, it is true, Mary was a very common name, Miriam. There is a lot of Marys in scripture. This one is a different one, but what we can gather here is she is the head of this household. If her husband has passed or whatever else, this is her home. And this is where the believers are gathered in prayer. And I love that Peter knew where to find his buddies. 
It was like, I broke out of jail. They're gonna be there praying for me. They didn't have the ability to text or to check where each other were on location finders. Like he just knew they're gonna be at Mary's house. They're gonna be praying. I'm gonna go find my people. I love that he knew where to go. And yes, it is comical that the servant was so excited that she didn't open the door. She turned and he's still locked outside. And interesting enough, when the scripture says that, she, that they doubt her, right? The people that were gathered, they doubt that she's right. This is really Peter. Instead of going to open the door and let him in, she, she insists. She starts like arguing with them. No, no, really, it's him. Like, just go open the door. You can prove this really easily. He keeps knocking. Eventually, she lets him in. I allow it to be just comical. I don't have a deeper meaning than that. It's just funny. Um, and then he leaves. Peter leaves. We don't, we don't know where. No more information about it. He pops up again later in chapter 15, verse 7. He briefly is uh, present in a moment we'll study later on. But other than that, Peter leaves. James is killed. No more said about that. Peter leaves. See ya. Miraculous moment. But he kind of goes away from the text. This is why people say that this book probably should be called the Acts of the Spirit instead of the Acts of the Apostles. It's a beautiful thing. The leader isn't the one who's important in this story. It's the work of God happening. That's what the point is. It's not that these people don't matter, though. Again, the physical is important. Their embodied presence and participation matters. But what we see here is that they're not the big deal. They're not the main point. Jennings again says, Luke has stripped away any ambiguity about who is driving this story. This is the Spirit's doing. This is the Spirit's work. By this chapter, we find the Spirit clearly speaking through and to the disciples. The voice of the Spirit and the voices of the disciples are together, but not confused. The agency of one does not negate the action of the other. I'm going to say that again. The agency of the one does not negate the action of the other. It's important because what this tells us is, Our participation, our human participation with the Holy Spirit of God is important. Our agency and the agency of God are together but not confused and working together. And that's important. They're faithful participants in something bigger than any of them. They don't get to be the big deal of this story. But they remain persistent despite opposition. And the spreading of the good news of Jesus is the point. So this opposition and perseverance. This is what being the Missio Dei, being the church, looked and felt like to them. It looked like persecution. But you'll notice right away in these short couple of verses, no leader, human leader, is irreplaceable. The good news continues. Not only that, but being the Missio Dei meant they expected opposition and challenge. And they operated with boldness, even despite of it. This was not about comfort. The whole uh, prosperity gospel would be so foreign to them. They knew that there was not going to be a rosy journey here, but the passion in their hearts for the Lord burned so much that they were willing to engage in that opposition with perseverance, and the gospel spreads. And the church keeps facing challenges the whole way. And here's another thing to point out, because you could leave that little moment, that story, and kind of be like, well, but why? Like, why was James killed and Peter spared? And why, why do we not know? Like, they both were faithful dudes and they both prayed a lot and were covered by prayer. We know this. No, there's nothing to indicate one was more faithful than the other or anything like that. Like, why did this happen? 
And I think in this moment that we need to go and just take a peek back in the Old Testament to the words of Daniel when he was in exile along Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in exile under King Nebuchadnezzar. And short story, Nebuchadnezzar was like, you should bow to me. That would be great. If you don't bow to me, you're going to go in a fiery furnace. And they were saying, we can't do that. We only worship the one true God. And he said, you're going to the furnace. And he replies, that God, Daniel replies, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he does not, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. The focus is not who is getting the saving and who is not. It's the commitment to God and now to Christ. That's what, we're, that's what these uh, two in this story demonstrate. My commitment is no matter the outcome. I stay committed in what it is I'm doing. It's commonly thought, or we kind of want to believe that like prayer and uh, praying the right prayer, most people solve problems, everything will turn out. There, there's, no, there's no promise of that. And that's not really exciting news. I'm sorry, it doesn't always work out that way. We see that with James and Peter. But Gonzalez says this, Eusto Gonzalez says, mature faith does not consist in being able to manipulate God but rather in placing one's self in God's hand in such a way that we may be at the divine disposal in every circumstance. This trust is an active posture, not passive. This is an active posture of persistence in the face of opposition. So we'll pick back up way quicker in verse 20. Now, Herod is angry with this group of people. He goes there and he's gonna talk to them about it. And then going into... Um, he put on his royal robes, got all fancy, sat on a throne and made a speech. Uh, going to verse 22, the people gave him a great ovation saying, it's the voice of a God, not of a man. Instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with sickness he became, because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving God, glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. So he is struck down immediately when he accepts praise that's due to God. He thought he could stop the movement of God with violence. We saw that with Peter and James, right? That was his plan. Perhaps the worms are to just really demonstrate how very not God-like he is, to be that kind of gritty. Um, anyway, that's enough. That's gross. But it's to really let him know how not God he is. But the observation that I have for us here is that no political figure can stop the movement of God. A political figure cannot stop the movement of God. So back to James and Peter and like the why questions, why one and not the other. So our responsibility as Christians is not to come up with explanations for why things happen, but respond in trust regardless of what happens. To want to have all the answers is want to become gods as Herod Agrippa did. That was really compelling to me when I read it because I really like to have all the answers personally. But that's just a reminder. Both James and Peter, they heard and had heard firsthand Jesus' teaching from Luke 12, 4, that they do not need to fear those who can only kill the body. After enemies do their worst, the enemy is through, but God is not. Political figure cannot stop the movement of God. So moving on from there, uh, we see we've moved away from Jerusalem and we now are in a church in Antioch of Syria. And in 13 verse one, um, and among the members of prophets, among the prophets and teachers at this church were these gentlemen, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, called the black man. So I've mentioned before that different translations go different lengths of 
translating words. So the word here is Niger, and my translation, the NLT, went ahead and did that translation for me. That means black man. Lucius from Cyrene, that's also an African uh, man. Manian, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. So in other words, he grew up in Herod's court. That was like his people, his scene. And Saul, who also uh, is known by the name of Paul, who we continue on with the rest of this story. You'll remember that Saul was the one who was stood approving at Stephen's uh, stoning. He was causing major persecution before meeting Jesus and having that, um, that moment with Jesus on uh, uh, on the road where he was blinded. And anyway, he had an amazing conversion story. That's this group of believers who are together. Not any of the original 12. You'll notice that. We are seeing new people on the scene. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So we see here, first of all, the diversity of names that's involved in this next movement of God. And we see the baton passed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who guided these men to appoint two of them for this plan. So the, remember, the plan was always to expand the blessing beyond the nation of Israel to all of the nations. And these are the two who are set apart for this next season of work. And so I wanna do another side observation. When it comes to knowing your calling, if there's something that you can see from this text is that we know sometimes there's a direct calling. Like when uh, Jesus intercepts the life of Saul and says, Paul, why are, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There was a calling, like, I've got a call for you. Or like when Peter was told by God in that vision to go to Cornelius' house. Sometimes a calling is specific and individual, but often it should be confirmed or it comes from a community of faith. That's what we see here. This is a community discerning the calling of the Lord upon specific individuals. And that's something that also needs to be trusted. And then again, we'll also see in Acts that when it comes to calling, you also have to observe and be open to the um, situation unfolding around you. Circumstances can sort of guide uh, and confirm a calling as well. So that's a little observation of this moment when it comes to calling. So Paul and Barnabas, these are the two who have been marked. They don't undo previous leaders, but it will not, this text will not let us think that the movement is about the leaders. So what do we learn here? Changing leadership cannot stop the movement of God. It's really important for us to remember that. Things may feel shifty, but that can't change the movement of God. So later these guys go on and they face a sorcerer. They can get continued opposition. And in this moment, the name of the sorcerer indicates that he is Jewish. Um, it, but we see a spiritual resistance here, right? He's a sorcerer and he's got the ear of the governor and he likes to have the ear of the governor. The governor is interested in what Paul is teaching and this sorcerer is trying to stop him because he doesn't want to lose that influence, that, that um, uh, political influence that he has with his relationship with the governor. And so we see this resistance. Paul silences him with blindness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see here, spiritual resistance cannot stop the movement of God. This sorcerer is not gonna get in the way of things, but not just that. It's not only about spiritual warfare in this moment. There will be opposition, but we see here that this also includes not only spiritual, but that spiritual resistance comes through places that have to do with religious and political and economic resistances. It would be good for Christians to remember, Jennings said, that these primary sites of spirit resistance and the spirit's power to triumph even over them. That's what we see here. The sorcerer was Jewish. She was linked to political power. He had influence. 
and uh, the spirit would not allow uh, that to stop the movement of God. So we see this opposition again in the very household of God uh, as Paul and Barnabas go on in Antioch. They, what they did, they, they went to the synagogue. They were faithful Jewish people who now knew that the fulfillment of God's promise had come through Jesus as the Messiah. So they went to the synagogue to say, hey, everybody, good news. All the Old Testament scriptures have been fulfilled in this person, Jesus. This is really great. I want to take a pause here a minute because I think that as Christians, we can sometimes get in a funny place when it comes to reading these texts and kind of get uh, us versus them with the Jewish nation. And I just want to say for my part, you guys, I have so much compassion. What would I have thought? If I were a faithful Jew and somebody told me this story, like I don't, I, I will not have this become like a Jews versus Christianity. Christianity, they got it. The Jews didn't. They were trying to be faithful. Not all of them could see that this was such a radically different fulfillment of God's promises than what they were expecting. So this is not about Christian versus Jew at all. What we see here is Paul says elsewhere, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is an expansion, never over against, but both and. But what we observe here is that not even the faith community can stop the movement of God. This resistance came within the faithful community, but the movement of God could not be stopped even by the house of God. And that's where I want to just press in for a minute this morning, because that's where we are. We are a faith community. We are the house of God, one of a kajillion, I don't even know, gathering this very moment to worship the Lord. And we're full of broken, messy people. Not even us. We can't even stop God's plan. When you see something going on, when you have a friend who calls themselves a Christian and they're acting like a nut, they can't even stop God's movement. And we need to stay res uh, persistent even in the face of opposition. I've been listening. Have you guys heard the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill by Christianity Today? Oh my gosh, it's killing me. Um, not only as a pastor, but as a congregant. So it's not about this, it, I mean, it is it's telling this story, but they do a really faithful job of saying like, this isn't just about one guy, one leader and what happened. This is about how did a whole community love this kind of leadership? How did we, church, um, build a culture that let, let situations like this, not just there, thrive and take off. And look at how God still moved. God even still moved with amazing stories, even in the midst of it. It's a really good, it's a really good listen, but it's super sobering as a pastor and just as a congregant at large to say like, we are forming what it is that we are as the church. And sometimes we mess up, but I am here to remind us today faith community and the mess ups that happen even here cannot stop the movement of God. The answer can't be to walk away. It can't be because we are still the missio day, the, the mission of God, God's plan for presence here and now, God's plan for the good news to spread through, in, and from us as persistent, persistent witnesses to our own stories about what God has done in our lives that you don't need to be a Bible-thumping preacher on a corner to share your testimony of where God has moved you, how Jesus met you, and then you will face people who have church baggage. That's the thing I want to remind us, and that's sad, and I want this to be a place that includes healing. If you're here with church hurt, like let us 
let us carry that together. I truly believe that we, I want us to all, uh, uh, it doesn't have to be at this church. Let, um, let's do the big capital C church. Let church help to be a place of hope and healing. Spirituality is a tender spot in our souls. It's because our spirituality, our faith is so important to us, who we are. It's, it's so intimate to our very souls. And it's also because community is so important. It's how we are hardwired as humans to live, is in community. And in the city, that can be really extra weird sometimes. And so to find a group of people who love you and laugh with you and forgive you when you mess up and want to do life with you and check in on you after your dental appointment and all of that stuff, community matters. Spirituality matters. Intersect those in the faith life of church body, of a community, of a fellowship, and you've got a tender spot. You put those two together, it's so much potential to ache because it matters so much and it's so close to your heart. And your wounds matter. But can't we together try to be a place of hope and healing and depend on Jesus for the restoration that Jesus brings? God is in the business of renewal. And I believe in faith that we can be a place where, where if you're hurting, let us be part of your healing. Not gloss over it, but let us, let us sit with you in that, in that moment and call upon the Lord in prayer for healing to come. If you're worried about engaging that way with community, if it feels a little vulnerable, just let's just choose anyway. Let's be honest about that piece before each other and before God. And if you're here for the first time or the 100th time, there is more of God in our spiritual formation together. And I need you and you need me and we need each other for true spiritual formation to happen. Community matters. And so I say that today just to wrap up with this, this look at this scripture and here's what we see. There's a movement of God happening and it's just starting out in this moment in the book of Acts. We're 2,000 and some years into it now, but it's still happening. And I believe in faith that the way that that continues to happen is in and through the people of God who are faithful to continue to grow more and more into Christ's image, more and more into the people that God meant each of us to be individually and collectively. So I want us to just consider that as we um, read these two chapters this week and then read 14 for next week. We're going to consider this, this radical ongoing movement of God. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.